This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 IFM. Good afternoon and welcome back to Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Ari Kievman. It's great to be with you here today. And the latest news in the Jewish community is that it's Rosh Chodesh El just yesterday. We starting the month in which we are going to welcome Rosh Hashanah and a brand new year that is just around the corner. So in all shuls and schools and everywhere around the community, we've been blowing the shofar for the past couple of days. And you think about the shofar, it's one of those wonderful Jewish, what do you call it? Like a nice logo, a an icon. And Jewish logos actually go back long ago. We talk about the Mug and David, for example, the Star of David, and many other Jewish symbols like the menorah and the tablets. And, you know, just look around and you'll see different symbols of Judaism. But certainly the shofar is one of those symbols. And we're using it every day now to welcome Rosh Hashanah, it's preparation, it's a symbol, it's a sign of awakening. And I want to talk a little bit about the shofar because, you know, with uh, matzah, we basically only eat it on on Pesach. Well, you could eat it any other time of the year except for 30 days before Pesach. Whereas Rosh Hashanah, we do blow the shofar for 30 days before the festival. On Sukkot, we only eat in the sukkah during those days, and that's it the symbol is about. You think about each of the holidays, Rosh Hashanah, we anticipate, we prepare for it, and I would say in a sense we precipitate it by blowing the shofar now for the days in advance, and it's certainly something that I'm sure is on people's minds, and we could talk a little bit about the shofar, because I think as a symbol, as an icon of the Jewish people, and in fact we think about the other symbols related to the festival of Rosh Hashanah, we think of apples dipped in honey, we think about prayer books, we think about fish heads, but the shofar is perhaps the only one that is most emblematic of the holiday, and especially of this period of preparation for the holiday. What is the purpose of the shofar? Well, the Gemara in Tractate Rosh Hashanah 26b tells us that the shofar of Rosh Hashanah, the what's the point, why do we blow it? Well, of course, it's described as one made of a ram's horn. So I know some people like kudu horns and other animal horns, but the ram's horn has a certain symbolism because it reminds us of the binding of Isaac, the Akedah. So there's lots of other symbolisms, and I don't know if we'll have the time today to go through all the symbolisms of why we blow the shofar, and there are many reasons for it. But I want to talk about the shofar, and not just the shofar, but some of the prayers, some of the things, the requests that we have on Rosh Hashanah, what we ask for, and how we could actually start now in anticipation of the holiday, and all the wonderful things that we ask God for. In fact, you might notice that there are some very materialistic things that we ask for, and it's something that people have been asking me about, and we'll talk a little bit about that, because that's been something in my mind, something I've been learning about, or occupying my mind with. So if you think about the shofar itself, you think about the purpose, why is it blown? Now, the Talmud tells us one of the reasons is it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call. There's a verse that says, Uru Wake up! You slumberers, you sleepy ones, from your dormant, your sleepy state. And 
inspect your deeds, repent, remember Hashem. Now that's one of the reasons explained for the blowing of the shofar. There are, like I said, many reasons. And the one that came to my mind in particular is one that is explaining the concept of coronating, of crowning God as our king, as we do on Rosh Hashanah each year. As Rosh Hashanah comes around, it is an opportunity to incarnate, to crown God as our king, to accept the sovereignty and our subordination to the Almighty once again as king of the universe. It's interesting because in the Torah portion that we read this week, we also talk about the concept of a king. But just thinking about accepting God's kingship, God's sovereignty over the world, as we do each year. And the Talmud describes that in ancient times at a coronation, when they would actually do this crowning of the king, there would be trumpets and shofar blasts. That was the ancient way Jewish kings were coronated. And I imagine not just Jewish kings, you know, we're not so familiar today with the concept of coronation because we live in democracy where in fact, presidents and prime ministers are not as revered and respected as they were once before. In Israel, as Jay Leno put it, you know, you ask a minister, you ask a member of government what his cell number is, it has a whole different meaning because in Israel, one democracy where they don't shy away from punishing corruption. And yes, many ministers, even the present prime minister is being investigated at the moment for whether or not the alleged claims against, alleged claims about his behavior and corruption, whether they're true or not. But as we know, as we've seen, whether it was the previous Prime Minister Olmert or President Katsav, who weren't speared, and, and even rabbis in Israel and chief rabbis, unfortunately, were investigated because of inappropriate behavior. And so the carnation of a king, though, is very different. Here, you know, with Zuma's behavior, if you didn't approve of it, there was a vote of no confidence. And in ancient times, kingship, monarchy, royalty was something that was seen in a whole different way than we understand it today. But the emphasis I want to put on is the coronation of the king, because that the Talmud describes as something that had, that was accompanied with all types of musical accompaniment. And even today, you know, I, I think that the Trump uh, presidential inauguration was very different this year. I, I, I think they had a different type of accompaniment. But for example, the the description of how King David's carnation was, it says, They would have the trumpets and the blasts of the horn that would shout before God. It was a whole different, a whole different experience. And especially when we're coronating God as our king, which we do in Rosh Hashanah. So the Gemara tells us one of the reasons is, one of the reasons for blowing the shofar is because that's precisely what we do on Rosh Hashanah, is we're coronating God as our king. And we consider that Rosh Hashanah is a day in which Hashem, Almighty God, reasserts the royal command of the entire world. And the description is that on that day, because Hashem accepts that regality, that command of the world, it's a day of judgment as well, which we know one of the purposes of Rosh Hashanah is that it's a day of judgment. And so being a day of judgment, 
a day that God stands in judgment, then it's most appropriate that the shofar expresses that theme. And Rosh Hashanah's theme of majesty and submission to Hashem's will, the whole purpose of blowing the shofar is the coronation of God as king. But at the same time, it's a day of judgment and a day when the decision of the, our personal fate for the coming year is decided. And that's one of the reasons why we occupy ourselves during these days in preparation of Rosh Hashanah with introspection, with teshuva. So the question that a lot of people wonder is, if you look at many of the prayers that we say on Rosh Hashanah, a lot of them are for personal matters. A lot of them have to do with what we ourselves want. And it's something fascinating how the Zohar, in Tikkunei Zohar, there's actually a little bit of a, I don't know if to call it a mockery, but sort of making fun. The, the, the Zohar says that the people who pray on the high holidays for their personal needs, it's like barking dogs. They cry. They say, give us food, give us atonement, forgive us, inscribe us for life. I think of that as like, you know, our prayers for some people. I shouldn't just say for some people, including myself and many others. We ask God for our personal needs. It's like God is our ATM machine. Hey, God, I need some cash today, buddy. Won't you just, you know, the, the prayer is like, you know, they type in the pin, the code. God, I need some cash today. And hopefully the ATM machine is working, listens to us, and the cash comes out. And the Zohar is, in a sense, like mocking it or or talking about that. If Rosh Hashanah is such a serious time, it's a time of reincarnation, of accepting God's kingship, then is this a time to be focusing on our personal things? Shouldn't we be focusing on more loftier, on more important things? I don't think this is the time to ask God for our personal business matters and, and our mundane material well-being. And this is, there's an ancient metaphor. I think it comes from the Medrash, but that sort of fits in with this. If carnation is about the subject of the king basically accepting his, submitting themselves to God's superior power of the world, then to focus on our personal wants is self-centered. It's narcissistic. It's going back to our personal primary needs like animals. And the famous Madrashic parable, the metaphor that's used is that there was once a king who sent his prince off to a very far off place because he wanted to train him. If you're going to become the future king, then perhaps it would be appropriate that you experience and endure the hardships of your citizens. This is not exactly an idea that all, that all leaders necessarily acclimate or uh, make themselves feel. And so the king sent the prince off to see what is it like living in the village like the rest of the people with a hope that the point of the prince doing this experience is that it will make him into a better king in the future. As the story goes, at some time, at some point, the king wanted to see his son. And so he traveled to that particular village where he dispatched, where he sent his son off to. And there he was living like the rest of the villagers. And because the king was coming to town, you can imagine the great, the tremendous awe and the excitement that was 
experienced by everyone. It was palpable in the air, and everyone came. All the villagers stood in a line to greet the king. And, of course, many of them had requests from the king, and each one gives their particular request to the king. Well, the king's son, the prince, who now was living life, sampling what it's like, what it's like, like a villager. He was, uh, in fact, the apprentice of a farmer. And you can imagine his day life was involved with plowing and sowing and tilling. All this back-breaking labor from morning to night. And as all the people are filing by the king with their petty requests, the king is awaiting to see what will his son request. And hoping in his mind, maybe he's going to ask me to take me home finally to bring it back to the palace. I've had enough. I know already what it's like to be like the villagers. And hopefully I'll be sensitive to their life and to the conditions. Well, each person comes by the king and each one is asking for their own personal needs. And finally, the prince, he has his turn and he turns to his father, to the king, and he says, Daddy, your honor, the farmer I work for, he enslaves me from morning to night, from dawn to, from dusk to dawn, from all of this brack breaking labor. You know what I get paid, daddy? All I get It's two potatoes a day. Now, you know what? For a typical villager, for a typical farmer's apprentice who's just used to this type of lifestyle, maybe for them it's enough. But for me, growing up in the royal palace, that's not enough. I work so hard. I've never had to lift even a fork in the palace. And here, I got to work so hard. I have to exert myself physically. It's such difficult labor. I ask you, Daddy, please, you could speak to my boss and ask him to assign me fewer tasks. Maybe I could work less hours in the day. Maybe he could give me less difficult work. And maybe he could pay me a little better. Maybe instead of two potatoes, maybe at least four potatoes. You know, it would be good if they would be a little more sensitive to my background. And his father looks at him and says, Oi. Tippish, my my son, how could you be such a fool? Is it potatoes that you want? Tell me, father, take me home, take me back to the palace. Instead, you're asking for potatoes. You could get anything you want in the palace. You're my son, you could come back home. And so this old Midrashic tale is basically describing our life. What it's like when we pray, especially in the high holidays come around. And this is exactly what we pray for. We ask for potatoes. We ask for our personal, physical, financial needs. We ask for health. We ask for wealth. We ask for our own narcissistic, self-centered personal requirements. Now, this is what the czar is, so to say, mocking. But the the question is, if you open your machsar, your prayer book, and you look at the long prayers, all the tefillot, the supplications that we say on the high holidays, and many of the prayers that we say every day, in fact, there's it's replete with all types of requests, petitions of God for financial success, for our personal well-being, for good health, for all types of other requests, for our own personal achievements, for our own personal goals. And that's what the Machser, the official prayer book, directs us to ask these Ask for these superficial things? You think about the prayers. 
We say, Beseifer Chagim Beracha Veshalayim we ask God to inscribe us in the book of life for sustenance, for all those wonderful things that we ask God for. We have the prayer, right? On Rosh Hashanah, we're inscribed in the book of life. Or who's going to live, who's going to die. You look at Nisan Tokov, all these prayers are about personal things. It's about life, it's about death, it's about... God, plague and, and 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 our children's needs and and God forbid not to be impoverished. You think about all these things in our prayers. What's going on? Is Rosh Hashanah about us? Is this what you do in the Carnation Day? Is this what you do when the King comes to town, like that Prince in the Midrashic tale? Is that what we can do? Is is just ask for our own personal things? Is that what it is? Why is it that that's what we ask for? Why are our prayers just about those personal things? You know, there's an expression, they say, a diplomat is a person, a man, who always remembers a woman's birthday, but never remembers her age. And I think about that when I think about the prayers, about our various prayers in Rosh Hashanah. And in the popular conception, Rosh Hashanah, we people think of it as the birthday of the world. And in fact, in the prayers itself, we say that, right? Think about the various prayers. This is the day, the beginning of your work. We say, uh, We describe the birthday, the creation of the world. And so many of our prayers are describing Rosh Hashanah as the beginning of creation. But anyone familiar actually knows that Rosh Hashanah is not the beginning. It's not the first day. It's the first day of the year, but it's not the first day of our, of the world's existence, right? And when we say that in the prayer, if we're saying, Hayom Harat Olam, that this is the day of the world's creation, there's something amiss because Rosh Hashanah, which are the first and second days of Tishrei, is not the first day of creation because the truth is we know that creation began six days earlier. Rosh Hashanah is actually the sixth day of creation. The world was created on the 25th of Elul and Rosh Hashanah celebrates not the creation of the world, but rather the birth, the creation of the first person. So if Rosh Hashanah is actually the sixth day of the creation, it's the anniversary of the creation of man. You think about that. After creating the light, light, after all the other creations, heaven and earth, on the 25th of El, and then God goes on to create heaven and earth and the seas and the animals and the trees and whatever else was needed to sustain and populate the universe as the Torah describes at the beginning of Genesis. Finally, on the sixth day, the day that man has created, that's the day that we celebrate as Rosh Hashanah. So, on the one hand, we have our Machser that tells us that Rosh Hashanah is the birthday of the world. And on the other hand, if you really look into it, then we're a week off because Rosh Hashanah should really be in about 23 days from now as today's the second of Elul, and creation of the world started on the 25th of Elul. So what's going on here? What are we to make of all this? 
Is this some kind of mistake in our calendar, a miscalculation? What's happening here? But if you look into the commentators who describe and give us insight into what's really happening, then we'll understand something that is very powerful, very important. Because while Hashem did create all sorts of things in the few days before Rosh Hashanah, and Rosh Hashanah is not the anniversary of the world's creation, but it was only when Hashem, when God created man, that the purpose for all of creation was actually fulfilled. And it's true that creation started a few days earlier, and you might argue that, yeah, maybe Rosh Hashanah should be in 23 days' time. But all those other things, the dust, the trees, the fish, the animals, everything else, is insignificant compared to man, to us, homo sapiens, us, human creation. That is the ultimate purpose of the world's existence. So, if we think about why the world was created, this our sages tell us is for one reason, and for one reason only. That is for us. We, human beings, is the purpose of the entire world's existence. Now, you might be wondering still though, why is this day, why is Rosh Hashanah, why is that marked as the day of the world's creation, or why do some of our prayers refer to it as the world's birthday? And that's something we're going to talk about in a moment when we're right back. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 IFM. Well, I was just thinking about a story, and this is a story that I shared a while ago, but it's one of my favorite stories because in 1968, there was a Dr. Spencer Silver, and this guy was trying to invent a super strong adhesive, a nice strong glue. He was working for the 3M company, and the problem was he was ending up with this low-tack reusable adhesive. It just wasn't sticking. It wasn't working. It wasn't strong enough. And he's been trying to, for a very long time to figure out, what do you do? What can I do with this? This, this is not a strong enough glue. This guy never gave up. This guy, he said to himself that it's not useless. There must be a purpose, a point for it. Maybe I found a solution without the problem. And sure enough, one of his colleagues, a fellow named Art Fry, came up with an idea of what he could use it for. And guess what? That is something that people use throughout. This is already since, you know, nearly 50 years it's being used. And those are the post-it notes, those little sticky yellow papers that we like writing our messages on our desks and on our refrigerators and wherever else we could stick them as reminders and love messages to our loved ones. Those little post-it notes came by a mistake. And the reason I thought about this is because I was just thinking about, we were talking about, it doesn't make sense. We don't celebrate the Jewish New Year on the day of the world's creation. And although our prayers refer to it as the day of the anniversary of the world's creation. So something seems a little bit amiss. But I think if we think about what is the purpose of man, why was man created? And why was man created after all of the other creations? Why everything else preceded us? When was man created? Yom Hashishi, right? On the sixth day. The final hours before the first Shabbos of the world. So why was man created 
on the eve of Shabbos. And this is something, again, discussed in the Talmud, much debate about it. And the Gemara Sanhedrin gives, Sanhedrin gives a wonderful explanation. The Gemara there says, it's like a king who built palaces, furnished them, prepared a banquet, and only then brought the guests to come. You think the fact that man was brought into this world at the very tail end of creation, only once everything else had been created and in an existence, is for a reason, is for a purpose. And of course, you could see it in two ways. There was one great sage who said, well, you know, even a little tiny ant, an annoying mosquito preceded us. You know, don't think you're such a big deal. But there's another way of looking at it as well. The point is that God intentionally held off creating man until everything else was created. Only once the stage was set and the props were arranged was God willing to introduce man, human beings, into the world where we would be able to fulfill the purpose of the entire world's existence, the entire purpose of the world's creation. You think about, you invite guests to your home. You're having some special guests for Shabbos. Do you invite your guests to your house for Shabbos dinner and say, Hey guys, welcome to my home. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to start fixing uh, around the house. We're going to set the table, right? Is that what you do? You have a dig- you invite a dignitary to your home, having special guests. Do you tell them, Oh, welcome to our home. Now we're going to start fixing the gutters, replacing the globes and painting the front fence. Let's get some linen maybe so you could sleep somewhere. How appropriate is that? When you invite guests to shop for Shabbos, it's a beautiful banquet, a delicious Shabbos meal prepared, set up for them. And obviously, the point the Medrash and the Talmud is making is that God created the world in six days. The first five days of creation was nothing but a necessary prelude. It was all for the purpose of the creation of man. We were the ultimate purpose of this world's existence. And yes, as vast and as phenomenal as all those earlier creations might be, and I know we've hardly even uncovered or discovered, unearthed the the purpose of it all. We have no idea what it's all about. With all our archaeological digging and with all of the astronomers and scientists and you name every researcher that exists, all of those creations have no independent value. Because if we look at their purpose, their purpose was to ensure our existence, a complete universe which was available to us because the entire purpose of the world's existence is for the human being, is for man, is for each and every one of us. And this is a beautiful concept. If anyone's ever studied Tanya or any Hasidic literature knows of the concept called of Dira Batachtonim, which is the concept of understanding that the entire purpose of the world's existence is God wanted a place of residence here in this world. And so, in order for God to have a dwelling place right here in Batachtonim, in the lowest of realms, this is where we partner with God in fulfilling the purpose of this world in order to make this place a comfortable home for God. And so, yeah, conventional wisdom is that God remains aloft in the celestial heights up there in the supernal realm. And that is where holiness swirls around and it's the angels up there that are basking in spirituality. And you would think, 
that God wants us to soar to such heights, to abandon, to not engage with the earthly realm, with all the physicality that we have in this world. But the concept of Dira Batachtonim teaches us that it might, while it might seem perhaps attractive to aspire to a spiritual, only spiritual life, but we have to understand that the reason God put us in here is to have a synthesis, a combination, to synchronize the physical and the spiritual together. If God wanted pristine spirituality and holiness, then why would he create the physical world? The angels, I'm sure, are doing a great job up there, whatever they're doing. So what was the purpose of this world that God created? God wants us to integrate spirituality, integrate Him into our day-to-day physical lives in this world, in the daily things that we do in our life every day. That we should reveal the spiritual and godly potential within the physical, the mundane things of and aspects of our life. And how do we do this? We achieve this by incorporating the most petty and worldly things into our relationship with God. And thereby, we are vesting them with holiness, with spiritual significance. Yeah, when we do every mitzvah, when we engage with physical things, when we are wrapping leather straps around our arms, when we are taking palm branches and shaking them in different directions on sukkahs, when we are giving, when we're going to work and doing our daily business matters and enables us to give charity, when we consume our food and drink and good ones, delicious, whatever the best we could eat and enjoy, and it energizes us to do good work in this world. All of those things everything we mentioned that we pray for in the Machsar and in our daily prayer books is all that we're able to create an environment of spirituality in this world around us. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 IFM. And welcome back. I'm Rabbi Ari Kievman. It's great being with you here. And in our last few moments, I just want to share with you that we are the purpose of this world's existence. The whole reason why everything else was created was solely to serve man our mission. And our purpose here is to engage with all the physicality of this world and to utilize it in the service of God and to make this world a better place. By being partners with God, we accomplish that. So all the days of creation, the five days that preceded Rosh Hashanah, what was its purpose? Everything, all of the galaxies and creations and everything that's there, everything is here to serve us, to help us, to fulfill our purpose. And so when we look at the sum of creation, and instead of just looking at its parts, then we realize that creation essentially means what is it that we celebrate on Rosh Hashanah? The creation of man. Anything else that was created was just to support, just to help, just to be there so we can fulfill our purpose in this world. Without man, creation is meaningless. It's virtually non-existent. Without us, the world actually has no purpose, no utility, no reason to exist. So, my friends, this is why Rosh Hashanah is celebrated as the birthday of the world. It's celebrated the day that man was created. Because we 
are the ultimate purpose. And my friends, we could partner with God and fulfilling our purpose of existence here in this world by doing the good deeds that we do. So, in the coming weeks, three and a half weeks left to Rosh Hashanah, I hope you utilize every day in that meaningful way in preparation for a new year, for a better year. The point of the month of Elul is for personal introspection, is to think back and reflect, what did we do? Why are we here? What have we accomplished? What could have we done? And what better could we do for the coming year? What purpose do we fulfill? Do we serve? And if we could just give a little more attention to realize why we're here, then we can make this world uplifting all of creation and make the world a much better place. My dear friends, stay tuned for Fresh Thinking Up Next with Rabbi Ari Shishler. And of course, join us here once again next week, same time, same place, same station for some great ideas and preparation for the holidays that are upcoming. And thank you for joining me here once again, wishing you all a meaningful and purposeful, wonderful Shabbos.